Hi, my name is Frida Walsh, and you're listening to Where They Are Now and Their Rule Follow. Today's episode is an interview with a 1998 graduate of Elon University, Carolyn Wong. Here's her. Hi, I'm Carolyn Wong, and I'm a graduate of Elon from 1998. My degree was in biology with a minor in chemistry. And I'm currently the Senior Vice President of Global Corporate Communications at Ultragenics Pharmaceuticals. I did not attend grad school, um, but I have been working in healthcare communications now for over 20 years. And one of my favorite stories about my experience at Elon, I did a winter term, I guess it was my junior year in Belize. And... I'll never forget one night the electricity went out and I remember going out and laying down in one of the hammocks with one of my friends and biology partners and um, there was no light pollution so we could see the entire night sky and it was absolutely incredible. It was like an experience I'll never forget. Wow. That sounds like an amazing experience. And biology plus chemistry is an incredibly heavy load that you faced. And in current day, you keep up with the balancing act of a heavy load. Being a board member on the John Ritter Aortic Foundation, can you speak a little on that? Sure, yeah, I'm a board member for the John Ritter Foundation for Aortic Health. Um, I hope everybody remembers who John Ritter was. You know, a comedian starred in... uh, Three's company and obviously shows later on too. And um, his wife, Amy Yazbeck, uh, who's also an actress, started the foundation when John died of sudden uh, aortic dissection, really with the goal of uh, improving early diagnosis of aortic dissection so that people can get more timely treatment and interventions. Um, and funding research into the causes of aortic dissection to support new interventions. And so that's been a very rewarding experience for me. And on top of that, you're a PR rep for pharmaceuticals. Can you talk about your day-to-day life and how Elon Education benefited you in your current day career? Yeah, well, I'm a huge proponent of having a liberal arts education. The fact that I was able to take creative writing classes during my time at Elon uh, and to pursue, uh, you know, scientific writing, um, but scientific creative writing even, and some of the early coursework, which was so enjoyable, I think it laid a good foundation for me in communications. I would also say like my first job out of college was actually in a lab. I was doing quality assurance for a pharmaceutical company, really helping them prepare for regulatory audits. And so it, you know, I I came out of Elon fairly detail oriented and able to handle a job that required a lot of organizational skills um, and an ability to synthesize scientific data, which is pretty key to my job now. Scientific communications is really important when you're working for a pharmaceutical or biotech company, even a health tech company, which is where I was before uh, when I was at Verily, which is a, a sister company to Google. So I think it gave me a lot of skills that have supported my career since, since then. I agree also. Going to a liberal arts school is something that is so beneficial for any type of career. Literacy is one of the main things taught here, and that is one of the most important things in society today. 
You need to know literacy to know math. You need to know literacy to understand science. You need to know literacy just to have a healthy financial life. You also have mentioned that you worked at multiple pharmaceutical companies. Can you talk about the biggest misconception that follows pharmaceuticals today? Oh, well, I think the probably the biggest one is around pricing. And there are a lot of bad actors, um, but the reality is the United States is the center of R&D innovation for a reason. You know, there's a lot of heavy investment by the government. You know, we are paying more for drugs in this country too. I think the the bigger problem though is that our regulatory framework and the data infrastructure within our medical system have not caught up with the advancements that we've made in science and biotech. And it makes development of drugs very expensive. Mm -hmm. So we're living in a golden age of biotech where we've seen breakthroughs in genomic sequencing and cell and gene therapies that allow for a complete shift to precision medicine, but we have to change the way that we study and evaluate the efficacy of these therapies in order to make them available. And that's gonna require some really big changes. Yeah. And that is something interesting to really point out that it's not necessarily the pharmaceutical companies, but we don't look at the bigger political regime that controls with them and the policies that are put in act. That being said, while we're on the topic of mistakes or misconceptions, what do you think is the biggest mistake that you've seen people make working in the field of PR? Well, I really feel like all scientists should be communicators. <laughs> I'm certainly not the first person to point out that, you know, our scientists who are advocating for change, like in climate science or even with COVID, like our epidemiologists and virologists would benefit from some training in communications, you know, thinking through what is the, the, the key message they want to leave an audience with and how do you take them there a lot of times it's being able to translate high science into more lay terms so people really can understand, you know, a, a college like or a university like Elon really stands out because you offer that um, you offer that type of opportunity. Yeah, I agree with you. Although mistakes inevitable could be semi avoidable if most scientists got an education in how to communicate. I feel like it's something very important. We need to be able to repeat our results and tell other people or else we won't be able to advance as a society. And in your job particularly, you have to do not only a lot of communication, but image building, representing, and being able to maintain the public eye. So do you have any advice for people who would want to go into your career field or have fears about maintaining the public eye within their new jobs? from a reputation standpoint, like if we're talking about fears around reputational hits, that means that something that could feel damaging today is going to likely be surpassed by other news tomorrow. I think that's good news or good for people to keep in mind anyway, just in terms of their own social media presence and profile. Um, you know, I think, uh, you know, when you think about communicating for a company, because I was thinking about this from a reputational standpoint a little bit, you know, the most important thing is to think about how you build trusted relationships with your audience members. So, you know, even, you know, what I have to think about is even in absence of news, 
how am I making sure that I have strong relationships with the right members of the media? And a lot of that is knowing what they care about, knowing what their interests are, um, and being responsive to that. So when I'm thinking about building a relationship with one of my executives, with, with a member of the media, I'm really positioning them as a resource to help them with their other stories, knowing that, you know, when the right time comes and I have my own piece of news that I can call on that same member of the media and they're going to be much more likely to be receptive to the news itself. Right. And something I really want to point out that I think is very important and crucial information to know is that it is really important to make sure that you make connections with someone first before focusing on career aspects, focusing on business, focusing on deals. Because you're right, someone is going to be more receptive towards you if you know them. But not only that, to understand humans, we inherently have to see each other as humans and not objects and subjects of each other's needs, wants, and et cetera. Yeah, so- I think one of the one of the fallacies that can happen with um, people who are just entering communications and doing media relations for the first time is they maybe see their job as just pushing news to media, but that is, that is in fact um, not how you're going to normally get your news um, published. You've got to build relationships. And that means really understanding what they care about, what they're writing about. Um, you've got to make sure that your pitch is going to hit the target. And, uh, you know, otherwise you're just, you're just blanket throwing stuff out on deaf ears. I completely agree. And you work for both the foundation and yourself pharmaceuticals. So can you please expand on what it's like if there's any conflictions that come with those careers or if they go hand in hand more than you think? Yeah, it's interesting because I think, you know, the reality is, um, so I work for a a rare disease company and uh, in rare disease especially, but I think it's a good illustration of the concept, but in rare disease especially, Sustainability, building a sustainable business that can support ongoing R&D and innovation in multiple therapeutic areas means that you have to you have to think about your stock price. You have to think about your ability to raise money. That means you have to have an active and engaged shareholder base that supports your stock, that understands what you're doing. That means that you know, that, that is not a business that can exist as a nonprofit. It's just not, it requires way too much money. We're talking about, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars to get drugs over the line. And, um, and, you know, no company is going to just launch one drug and then call it a day and live off that revenue for the rest of time. That's just not the way it works especially companies that are purpose-driven and want to treat many, many patients across many, many diseases. Um, and, you know, it, it simply doesn't, it's not sustainable as a nonprofit model. There are nonprofits that have been spun up to work on like nano rare conditions. These are conditions that would affect a handful of people, like maybe 30 at max. Um, and they have to look at developing a treatment that works in an individual and working with regulatory to, um, you know, to get the permissions they need. 
Um, and those can be much, you know, faster because you're talking about patients who may just die otherwise in a very quick amount of time. So the risk, you know, the risk calculus is different. Um, but even for those nonprofits, they have to raise millions and millions and millions of dollars. And a lot of times that is, you know, the onus is on the parent, on the patient community to do that fundraising unless they can get money from companies like Ultragenics. And we do, we work closely with Enlorum Foundation, which does exactly this work, but they're reliant on private companies for that type of funding as well. Um, otherwise that model will not work. Um, and I think the other thing we have to think about here is, you know, health equity, who are the people that are able to go and do that type of fundraising if you're really relying on a patient community? Um, whereas I think a business is better situated to think about a more diverse and representative population and rare disease, it's really, we need to take all comers because the, the populations are so small to begin with. Um, but I, I, again, I go back to the fact that sustainability matters. You can't deliver a drug to patients and continue R&D in other areas without it. Yeah. And I really respect that response. I think there's a huge difference between non-for-profits and businesses. Yeah. However, in society, we kind of only see the money aspect that goes into both sometimes. So it's really interesting what comes out of both and the clockwork that's needed to make it run. And if you were to give your younger self advice about your career path, your life, or anything in general, what would you go back and say? I mean, that is a, that's a really good question <laughs> because I did not, I am not at all where I thought I would be when I was in at Elon. If you had asked me then, I would never have guessed that I would be doing communications at a biotech company. Um, but it's funny, my dad actually, he was in corporate communications his entire career. My mom was like the chief development officer and doing communications for a host of nonprofits throughout her career. So the apple did not fall far from the tree. Um, at the same time, I really like the path that I took um, studying biology and chemistry. Um, that is, you know, I think if I were to go back to my to, to my younger self and say, you're going to you're going to end up doing communications. I wonder if I would have stuck with that same program or if I would have um, designed a, a different course load or different coursework. So I think what I would maybe go back and say to myself, rather than telling myself where I was going to go, it would it would be something like, you know, you know, follow your interests follow the things that you feel really passionately about, um, you know, and, and trust that those opportunities are going to take you in the right direction. I think ultimately that's what has happened. Yeah, I think that's amazing advice. And thank you for showing us how much your bio degree has taken you to places today. We really appreciate you coming on the podcast and thank you for your time. Okay, listeners, that's it for this episode of Where They Are Now and Where We Will Follow.